Hello, fellow Kentuckians and other friends, and welcome to a new edition of my old Kentucky podcast. My name is Robert Connie, and joining me is nobody. Jasmine's not here. I didn't get anybody to fill in again. Uh, if if you want to know where Jasmine is, you can ask her. I know, but I'm not going to tell you. You should pester her and ask her. Uh, maybe she'll tell you. But she's not here. That's uh, that's for sure. Um, but we have a good show anyway. Our guest this week is Amelia Martins. She is a poet and writer based in Paducah, Kentucky. She's my friend. She uh, is the program manager for the Kentucky Rural Urban Exchange, which I'm a part of. Uh, our interview was with her about Western Kentucky identity. We did a show similar to this last year about Eastern Kentucky and a- Kentucky Appalachian identity with uh, our friend Ivy Brashear, who um, is also involved in the Kentucky Rural Urban Exchange. That was a really thoughtful conversation. And as we've been talking to several candidates from Western Kentucky, I definitely wanted to come back to that uh, sort of theme and, and talk to somebody about Western Kentucky identity, and Amelia was perfect for that. She talked to me about, um, you know, her experience in Western Kentucky. She's not a native, but she's lived there for almost 20 years. Uh, just kind of how she feels uh, about the region and how she came to be there and how, uh, you know, her experience there has, has been and, and what she, you know, how it's, how her perception has changed over time. We also talked a little bit about politics and, and, you know, why, you know, her perception about how the politics of the region have shifted, why people believe the things that they believe there. And, and, you know, we got some really interesting answers, interesting and thoughtful answers about like what the rural urban divide is like in Western Kentucky and, and in smaller cities, um, the importance of rivers and what the subregions are in Kentucky. You know, uh, when we talked to, people running for office a lot of the conversations are are about the same topics and and we get great answers from all the people that we invite on the show but it was really cool to talk to amelia and get a very very different perspective and and a little bit higher level so we're very happy to bring that to you but before we get to that interview we do have a few things to talk about most of them are quick hits but we did have one longer story and the longer story is about chad meredith this guy who was potentially going to be nominated for judge in Kentucky. That nomination is off for very strange reasons. So let's get into talking about that right now. So last week, Andrew Bates, who is somebody who works in President Biden's office and communications, he told us that Chad Meredith would not be receiving a nomination to be a federal judge, which in speculation that that that, that very conservative man, Chad Meredith, uh, would be put onto the bench by a Democratic president, which seemed weird in the first place. So we, we've talked about the politics behind Meredith's potential nomination already, that we talked about that in a previous show a couple weeks ago. It had been speculated that Mitch McConnell would be trading the nomination for the ability for uh, President Biden to place the U.S. attorneys in Kentucky. That is something that has not yet happened and is very strange that it has drawn on for so long without having anybody in those positions. So President Biden cited a very strange and interesting reason for not going forward with the nomination, which is that Kentucky's other senator, Rand Paul, refused to return a blue slip for Meredith. And refusing to return a blue, smith, or blue slip is the same as not endorsing that person for the job. So we did talk a little bit in that same show about, about the blue slip process and how it's changed over time. It's been increasingly ignored. It used to be basically a veto. If a home state senator didn't return a blue slip for a judicial nominee, they did not go forward. They were not confirmed by the Senate. Uh, so that was a way for segregationist senators in the South to prevent, you know, non-segregationist judges from being placed into into federal positions in the judiciary in their states. Uh, that's why that process evolved like it did. In more modern days, it's just been basically a way for senators to, you know, exert power 
over their states and the ju- judicial nomination process uh, as as it happens. Um, President Trump basically completely ignored it the first time ever that a judicial nominee was pushed forward without blue slips from either senator, and that happened in Washington a couple of years ago. So blue slips aren't mandatory, but it's kind of interesting that Rand Paul did not return a blue slip on this very conservative senator who could have been put on the bench by a Democratic president. Rand Paul was quoted by the Courier-Journal saying, quote, I support Chad Meredith and supported him when he was considered for a different position. I think he would make a good judge. Unfortunately, instead of communicating and lining up support for him, Senator McConnell chose to cut a secret deal with the White House that fell apart. In other media, Paul said that the blame for the deal falling apart should lie with McConnell because of his secrecy. So definitely kind of more of a (laughs) fight between Rand Paul and Mitch McConnell than like Joe Biden or Republicans and Democrats, which I, I find a little funny. I don't know. That's maybe just me. You know, this very conservative judicial nomination that, that President Biden was apparently about to make did not go forward because of Rand Paul. Mitch McConnell asserted that there was no deal between the Biden administration and McConnell. This was after the deal fell apart. The Courier, the Courier Journal quoted an anonymous McConnell advisor who said that the deal was struck in good faith between Ronald Klain, who's the president's chief of staff, and McConnell, basically just because they were just being nice. Uh, I don't know whether or not that's true. I don't know who to trust there, but that is the story they're going forward with. Liberal groups and Democrats were both happy that the deal was spiked. I suspect that there's a lot of folks within the political staff of the Biden administration who are relieved. Um, You know, this was a very, very strange moment where something very, very extraordinary was going to happen where we're going to have this anti-abortion, you know, guy behind the pardons of Matt Bevan, very conservative in all, basically every possible way, Federalist Society member and everything. This guy was going to be on the bench in Kentucky for life because of an nomination from President Biden, a Democrat, which looks like that fell apart. Um, And thank goodness. So that ends that chapter of uh, 2022. All right, that was the big story. We do have a few other quick hits. The first is that Kentucky Republicans continue to fight amongst themselves about election fraud lies. The main election skeptic in Kentucky is State Senator Adrian Southworth, who continues to say that the election system in Kentucky is connected to the Internet and um, doesn't count correctly. I, I, you know, I don't I don't know if that's a full and fair accounting of her beliefs, but her beliefs are are just way out into left field, way out of nowhere. And they've passed laws to, like, accommodate her beliefs. And she really hasn't calmed down um, in, in repeating a lot of these kind of non-truths about Kentucky's uh, election system. Secretary of State Michael Adams, along with most of the Republicans in leadership, have been criticizing Southworth and and the lies that she's been telling about the the election system since she reiterated them during a legislative meeting on Tuesday. So the reason this is a little bit of uh, news is this kind of goes up and down, but State Senator Adrian Southworth talked about it uh, quite a bit on Tuesday, and she has since gotten a lot of criticism, especially from Michael Adams, who's running for re-election to Secretary of State, and from the legislative leaders on the Republican side. So a little bit of an internal Republican fight with about election fraud. Okay, next up, Louisville Metro Council member Cassie Chambers Armstrong, who's been on the show a few times, she has announced her intention to run for state Senate if Morgan McGarvey wins the United States congressional seat that's currently being held by John Yarmouth. 
So that that seems likely, I think, um, that, that Mor- Morgan McGarvey will win that seat. And if he wins that seat, Cassie Chambers Armstrong will put herself forward to the Jefferson County, the Louisville Metro Democratic Party. And uh, if they choose her as the nominee, then she will run for state Senate. That seems likely to happen as well. Whoever's going to be the nominee for the Democrats, it's a very highly Democratic seat. Um, that person will likely become the next senator from that part of Louisville, the Highlands, and a couple of other areas. And then uh, that Metro Council seat will open. Council member Cassie Chambers Armstrong, though, would be moving from a legislative body with a Democratic supermajority, and that's the Metro Council in Louisville, to one with a Democratic superminority. I think there's only eight or nine senators left in the state Senate in Kentucky. So that's big news, especially if you're in this part of Louisville. And the last one, um, there is a massive shell of steel at 18th Street and Broadway in Louisville's West End, and that was supposed to house Passport's headquarters. We talked about this quite a bit when it was happening in the news last time, which was uh, several years ago at this point. Passport was sold to Molina Health. Um, This is a part of a big, wide-ranging uh, Medicaid-centric deal, kind of the end of Kentucky running its own Medicaid system. And um, now everything in Medicaid is run through the private sector. Um, And yeah, and Molina was supposed to be developing this area into the headquarters for their Kentucky operations, um, but that had been put on hold. And really, everything had been put on hold. So there's just this really big steel shell out in the middle of Louisville's West End. Um, yeah, JCPS, though, this week expressed interest in using the site for its new middle school. They announced that there would be a new West End middle school during the student assignment plan that came forward. And yeah, that would be really cool if this, this site finally got developed. That was something that um, was supposed to happen long ago, and it would be great to have something go into that site, which is very large, and something needs to go there. So, very good. All right, that is all. Let's get to our interview with Amelia Martins. Amelia Martins is a writer of poetry and prose based in Paducah, Kentucky. She's also the program manager for the Kentucky Rural Urban Exchange. Originally from the West Coast, she moved to Western Kentucky in the 2000s and has lived there for nearly two decades. Her most recent book is The Spoons in the Grass Are There to Dig a Moat. She's also uh, Four chapbooks of her writing have been published, and there are several more of her stories and poems in magazines and other publications. Amelia Martins, welcome to My Old Kentucky Podcast. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Yeah, we're thrilled to talk to you. So we've been, yeah, we've been doing a series of... Uh, uh, candidate interviews throughout all of Western Kentucky, and last year we did, uh, you know, an interview with Ivy Brashear, who I, you know, you're friends with, uh, about Eastern Kentucky identi- identity and like Appalachian identity. We wanted to kind of do the same thing uh, with Western Kentucky. Um, you know, tell us a little bit about how you came to live in that region, because um, I don't think you're a native, right? Uh, right. So tell us how you ended up there, you know, what your perceptions of the area were before you moved there, and, you know, how your perceptions of the region have kind of, like, changed over the time in which you've, you've lived there. Okay. Well, when you say that I've been here almost two decades, that sounds like a really long time. Um, so I moved to Paducah in 2007 from Indiana, and I was going to grad school in Indiana to get my MFA in poetry, and I had come to Indiana from California, and I spent most of my life um, in Southern California growing up. I was born in Washington State, so wasn't really a Californian, wasn't really uh, from Indiana because I was just there from grad school, and then I met my husband in the MFA program at IU, and he was from Paducah. So 
Um, he had no worries about this, but I was extremely worried once we graduated that we were going to be two poets um, who would be jobless and homeless. And <laughs> we were not going to move back to Southern California because that was one of the things that I realized in leaving California was that there were places um, in this country where you could still live uh, reasonably because even California in 2007 was ridiculous yeah. um, in terms of like cost of living and how much time I was spending on the freeway and just, it was not, it was not the life that I wanted to have once I had left it. And so I didn't know very much about Kentucky, our MFA program. It was the first year that the poet Morris Manning was teaching in that program. And he was from Kentucky. Sure. Um, my husband Britton's from Kentucky. Mitchell Douglas was in that program. He's a poet from Kentucky. So there was a pretty strong uh, Kentucky influence in that program. And just getting to visit, um, you know, being in Indiana, we started to look at Paducah as a place to live. And yeah, that's how we got here. It was just, it was affordable. There was community college. Um, we could teach. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, I don't think an uncommon story for people who end up living in Kentucky who aren't natives, you know, the, the fact that it's, you know, it's not cheap, nowhere to live in, uh, it really anywhere is cheap, um, but it's cheaper than a lot of other places. And, and yeah, uh, the opportunities to do to do different kinds of things there. So yeah, it's in over the past 20 years, um, you know, how has your perception changed? Like when, once you got to Western Kentucky, you know, uh, did, do you feel, I mean, obviously you weren't, you're not homeless now. Uh, did you, I mean, how, what was it like when you moved here? And then how, how has that kind of changed with your relationship with your neighbors and friends there? So one of the, the things that attracted me, um, and us to Paducah was that they were going through the artist relocation program, which sounds like exactly what it like there's a force behind that that, that um, <laughs> we, we probably should talk about later but um they were doing a lot to bring artists into paducah and that made me feel like you know coming out of graduate school it would be good to live in, an, in a community that was pro art mm -hmm. so that was that was a big draw and um you know we, we have a lot of friends who are potters and metalsmiths and things like that weavers who you still have that creative community um that we really liked but my first impression, I was like, we are never going to move to Paducah. If we moved to Paducah, we would have to become the strangest versions of ourselves. And that's what I remember thinking. And, and then once we lived here, I was like, oh, no, we don't. I mean, we, we probably still are the strangest versions of ourselves. But, um, yeah, it was a big shock for me because I thought that I grew up in a small town. And Ventura is like 290,000 people. It's like the size of Lexington almost, yeah. It's well, I was like, that's a small town in, in Southern California. And then I moved to Paducah, and my uh, my husband's father was a minister in town, and there was, like, no possibility of being anonymous. Um, and I had never experienced that before, where, like, you go to the grocery store and you have to talk to your sixth-grade math teacher. Like, I didn't know what was happening. So I spent, I think, the first, like, three years just a little freaked out that everybody knew everybody. Um and it was a really, uh, it, it was just really different to come to a place where families had known each other and they had known their kids and everybody was connected, which has been really nice since we had children. Like now as a parent, I'm like, oh, this is great. Everybody knows everybody. And if my kids do something, somebody's going to see them. And, um, <laughs> I know about it, so. Yeah. Um, so, you know, one of the things that I know about 
Western Kentucky from my friends in the region is that there are like m- multiple like sub regions within Western Kentucky. And that's true of, of everywhere. I mean, even in Louisville, you know, we have neighborhoods, but then, you know, in uh, my, my wife's family and my dad's family are from Ashland, Kentucky, which is like Northeastern Kentucky, which is very, very different than Southeastern Kentucky. Yeah. Uh, and you know, in Western Kentucky, there's a few that I learned in, uh, in fourth grade Kentucky history class of like the Penny Ryle and the Western coal fields and that like eight counties, the furthest to the west that west that's like the jackson purchase so like as somebody who who came to it did those regions make sense to you today are there other sub regions as an as somebody who lives there now that make more sense so this is the, one of the things that i'm going to say that's really embarrassing is that i um until i i started working as the program manager for the rural urban exchange so in like february i was convinced that western kentucky was just the jackson purchase ah that's it and then I had this talk with Savannah and her giant map, and she was like, no. <laughs> um, there's a lot more of Western Kentucky than that. And I was like, no, there's not. I'm totally a, like a far Western Kentucky snob, I guess. That's true yeah. of that's true of other the other side of the state, too, though, because there's people from like Pike County or Floyd County that are just like what Eastern Kentucky is just like four or five counties, like all the way to the Eastern right. Kentucky. It's yeah. Just yeah. Like I was like, it's just us. Like if you get past the lakes, I don't know what that is, but it's not <laughs> Western Kentucky. Because when, like, when I tell somebody I live in Kentucky, they're like, "Oh, do you live in Louisville?" I'm like, "No, <laughs> I live in the West." And they're, you know, maybe they might say, "Oh, well, like, like uh, Western Kentucky University." I'm like, "No, <laughs> I'm like two hours west of Western." Um, so, I, I don't know. I, I think that I am biased in this, and I don't have a good answer for this I, I actually had to look up and i was like well where are the coal fields and we just went to muhlenberg county so i know that that counts but i didn't realize they went so far north like all mm-hmm. the way to the boulder yeah and then i didn't realize how big the penny Rile was it's the biggest like, region in kentucky it's huge yeah it is um yeah it also makes the the congressional district makes more sense i was mm-hmm. like oh Yep. Okay, that's why it goes all the way over there because that has never made sense to me. Doesn't make sense that it goes to Frankfurt now, but it does make sense that it loops under like that. Yeah, it's yeah, wild. yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, and and you know, regional identity are something that we learn a lot about, and you know that there's a long history of. But you know, as things grow and change, it is kind of different. But it is kind of funny to, that your perception of Western Kentucky was the same as like somebody from Floyd County uh, talking it's about Eastern so Kentucky. Small. Yeah. I was like, it's just yeah, us. No, it's just us. Yeah. Uh, okay. So speaking of Eastern Kentucky, and this is something that I I, I do think, and we've me and Jasmine, um, my other co-host on the show, have talked about quite a bit, but like. I, I kind of feel like Eastern Kentucky has like a, a stronger brand <laughs> maybe than Western Kentucky. Um, and I'm curious to know if that's also your perception. Um, and if so, why do you think that the Eastern part of the state has that stronger identity than Western Kentucky? Yeah. So this was a really interesting question. And I, I've been thinking about this uh, since you sent the questions. And my first, my first reaction was to be like very offended. Um, <laughs> like, no, they don't. And then I was like, wait a minute. Um, if you talk to people outside of Kentucky, it's it's either like there's Louisville or like everyone is is from Eastern Kentucky. The right? hills, yeah, the mountains. Mm-hmm. That's that's it. And so I was thinking about this, and I um, I did a little bit of research, and I found an article that was um, it's not too old. It's like two years two years old. It's from the Journal of Jewish Identities. And I, well, I found this because they had quoted Sarah Bradley, who uh, runs the freight house here in Paducah. And so um, it's got this quote, and I thought this was really interesting, and it, it might sum up this idea. 
So they said, in spite of these known multifaceted aspects of Kentucky identity, the tendency to wrongly stereotype Appalachians and then reduce all Kentuckians to stereotyped Appalachians has not only led to violence against Appalachians and Kentuckians, but it also enacts violence itself by rendering an erasure of many others who also reside in Kentucky. So I think um, I think a couple things have happened. I think one, uh, the stereotype of of the the hillbilly from Appalachia has has dominated the the perception from the outside. Right, it's really strong, and um, it's been built up over the years by a lot of people doing a lot of work to to make a very uh, tight stereotype and then share it widely, and that's still happening. You know, thanks hillbilly elegy. Um, so it's still happening, but then that like that erases the people. The other the uh, like the Appalachian poets are a big deal, right? And that erases erases a whole bunch of people that live in that region. But it also erases a whole bunch of people that live in the rest of Kentucky, mm-hmm. right? You everybody gets reduced and simplified. Yeah. Um, the other thing I was thinking about is um, so Nathan Blake Lynn, who works at the McCracken County Library and is a fantastic musician. He, some of the work he's done uh, with the Wheelhouse Rousters is to look at Mary Wheeler's roustabout songs that she collected from, you know, from the folks working on the river. And so I think some things that may have happened in Western Kentucky is that we got sucked under that stereotype from Eastern Kentucky and then erased. But also, like with with people along the river, I. You had asked another question about like our region. And I think that like we are, there's something about the river where people, you know, travel and don't stay in the same place. And then we also have a, a big history of uh, railways, right? And so I don't know if it's that people are more spread out over here or there was a lot of access to mobility at a at an earlier point where people moved. And so you don't have the same um, like generations and generations of families being in the same place, right? They may have moved a couple counties over, or mm-hmm. they may have moved like down the river, or they may have moved to, to Western Tennessee. Um, so I wonder if it's that people spread in a different way. Um, yeah, I think there's I think there's a couple reasons. For those that. are yeah, those are really perceptive. I, those are a couple that I haven't really thought about because I mean I think a lot about like the '60s and the war on poverty and you know John Kennedy's trip to Appalachia and, and Kentucky and then Lyndon Johnson's trip to Kentucky and Appalachia and that like where a lot of those stereotypes kind of come from. I think of that as like establishing what poverty in Kentucky looks like. Um, but when you ask somebody about Eastern Kentucky, it's like you know there's coal and a high rate of poverty and that exists in western kentucky too both right. of those things yeah right. so it is kind of like you know what what's uh why, why is one more broad in the imagination but i also really like what you said about the river because i do think too there's a couple of different ways to divide kentucky and i think like land people and river people is definitely one as well um and you know i mentioned my family being from ashland you know ashland's also on the river and i think that that kind of separates them from a lot of the the coal producing counties and further south in kentucky um and and it actually brings a lot in common a lot of those kind of industries that exist all the way along the river if you talk about like maysville or all the way up to like northern kentucky cincinnati area down to louisville into henderson uh across to owens or owensboro then henderson and then all the way to paducah like absolutely those people have a a lot in common that we don't really talk about that much i think is um that's definitely one way to think about kentucky as well um 
Yeah, I did. I did want to ask you, I think this is the question you kind of alluded to, but, uh, you know, Western Kentucky as a regional identity. And when we talk about uh, lots of places in Kentucky, their region extends beyond just Kentucky. Like you talk about Louisville uh, and and how it has a lot in common with like Southern Indiana or Northern Kentucky, definitely reflective of, you know, Southeast Indiana and Cincinnati, Southwest Ohio. And then, uh, of course, Eastern Kentucky, very, very tightly wound up with um, with. West Virginia and Southern Virginia. Uh, Western Kentucky, I think, too, especially the part where you're from, has a bit of a regional identity that it shares with places like Southern Illinois, Southeastern Missouri, Western Tennessee, and, like, all of Arkansas. Uh, and, you know, kind of, like, beyond beyond just Kentucky, do, do you agree with that? Do you think that regional identity exists? And, and, you know, what is it that you think that sets that region apart um, from other regions on, like, uh, when we're thinking about, like, all of the United States? Oh, that's such a good question. Okay. So, I mean, there's a pretty strong uh, relationship between at least like Paducah and Southern Illinois, because I mean, it's, it's just across the river. There's like one more exit and you would be in Illinois. Um, But there's also this like animosity of like, oh, well, you're like, we cross the river and you're a different state. And then the the topography of the land changes pretty quickly. Um, So... I don't know. I, I mean, we are connected to Illinois, but I don't know that we're connected in the same way that I see like Henderson, uh, you know, like Indiana being connected with Evansville, to that Kentucky. Yeah. Like, those seem closer to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and the landscape seems more similar, but then, uh, so I would say we're very, um, it's easier to see the, the, relationship with like Western Tennessee um, just because you can like slip into Tennessee on accident. Like you're just like, <laughs> like, you know, you go over a County and you're in Tennessee and it's, you didn't have to cross the river. So you maybe don't notice that you're somewhere else and the, the landscape seems more similar. Um, so I think, I think that's closer to us. Um, Arkansas has a, interesting thing going because I feel like Arkansas is misunderstood in a lot of the same ways that Kentucky is. Yeah. Um, the rest of my family's from Arkansas. So I, I, yeah, (laughs) Yeah, I feel like, I feel like there's a, there's a kinship between us in in terms of like, which like how States are viewed. Um, that's, that's really similar. And, and the landscape too continues like down the river. Um, I, there's that little part of Kentucky that that's not, Kentucky Fulton like, yeah where you like go across and you go, you go into Missouri and then you're back into Kentucky again yeah yeah, where you can like you can only get to it from Tennessee mm-hmm. um and it's left off of like all the maps like you see the outline of Kentucky and those the people in the little dot are just never part of it and I didn't know until again Savannah and I were looking at the map and I was you know being biased towards my western Kentucky and she was like well what about this part and I was like that what is that <laughs> oh, so there's a part of Kentucky. It's an island. Like, for us, it's an island. They're connected to Tennessee. How did that happen? That seems weird. The um, river changed because it's, the, yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. Like, the river is so powerful. And the the other thing I'm going to say that's embarrassing is I didn't realize that the whole bottom of Kentucky was Tennessee. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So the, the, the river makes a lot of sense along the top in our border, but then the bottom seems so arbitrary. Like, there's so much... As you go across Kentucky, like Central Kentucky, there's there when we're talking about the rivers, like there's parts of Central Kentucky where, like the rural urban exchange has not really ever had anybody from. And if you look at it, it's because of the what happens with the different rivers, and like those people are much more connected to Tennessee. Yeah. So 
I feel like um, we've got the lakes that kind of disconnect us from the rest of Kentucky, and then we've got the river that you know separates us from Illinois and and Missouri. So we're much much more connected to Western Tennessee. But mm. if you talk to people, like they are not like Tennessee is its own thing. That, it's a, almost like a sibling rivalry. Like you're you know you're really mad at them a lot, but uh, at the same time you're probably the most you're the most like them. I guess yes. maybe yeah. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it is kind of interesting, uh, and, and it's something that doesn't get explored a lot. I always say, like, I don't know, like, that area of the Ozarks up into, like, how the, the Mississippi River kind of flows, and, like, that area of, like, the southern Mississippi River area is, like, I don't know, it's probably the most ignored region of Kentucky, and or, or of the United States, and I think Western Kentucky is certainly, like, right in the middle of it. Um, I, mean, I was yeah, I was wondering about this. Just having driven now across Kentucky so so much more than I was in previous life, um, like what would happen if we just took all the states and we just redrew them on lines that like made actual sense? Like, <laughs> well, these, they wouldn't make sense in, in different ways, probably. <laughs> I know people would be real mad. Too. Yeah, absolutely. Oh no, people people talk about oh you know we can redraw Louisville to be like no Louisville's part of Kentucky. That's part of our identity for sure. <laughs> um, okay, so so my old Kentucky podcast is a show that's about politics mostly, um, and, and you know uh, the purchase area of of Western Kentucky that includes Paducah, where you are in McCracken County. It used to be called like the Democratic Gibraltar uh, because it was as solid as a rock for Democrats. Uh, and that was a long time ago um, before you showed up in, in <laughs> Western Kentucky. Um, and, and now the region's, you know, exactly the opposite. Um, and, and just kind of like since you have moved there, have you noticed like a, a shift in the political opinions of your friends and neighbors uh, since you moved there? And, and, you know, what do you think? What do you account to that? What, what, why do you think that change has occurred? So... <sighs> I was thinking about this and one of the things I was, I was looking at and it, like the, the statistics I found are from 2012. So they're 10 years old, but it was talking about the Jackson purchase being 67% democratic and 27% Republican. And I was like, what? Cause it doesn't feel like that. That's, um, that's changed quite a bit in 10 years. Yeah. 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 And I, I feel like that shift has happened. Um, somewhat with people like identifying with um, maybe just identifying with the idea of being like left out of a conversation. Um, and like, that's a pretty strong feeling I would say in Western Kentucky is that we, um, nobody can see us and nobody can hear us. And so like, we're not really, uh, we're so far over here that we're, we don't really count. And I feel like a lot of people have identified with the narrative of um, not being included. And so I, but I also realized that, you know, I insulate myself with people who think like me. And so I, you know, in, in my mind, it's very progressive over here. And <laughs> people are, you know, it's, it's not red. It's, it's at least, you know, it's at least purple. Um, but then if, you know, if you go outside of Paducah, it's, it's pretty red, pretty dark red. Um, and I, I think a shift has happened, um, in the last couple years of just people realizing that if they want to be heard, they have to start speaking up. And so there's been a lot more, um, like local protest movements. There's been a lot more 
of different people's voices being heard. There's been a lot more attention to things in the past that just got overlooked um, or people didn't talk about, and now they're talking about them. Um, we went to a, a very small protest about uh, reproductive rights and like the, you know, and I took my kids and I was like, what, how is this gonna go? And the, the response from people on the street was, uh, was pretty mixed. And, you know, in my mind, they're like, that's a good thing because, you know, five or six years ago, it would have been uh, a lot more people uh, snarling and, you know, not being receptive to people on the street with colorful signs. Yeah. So I feel like it has changed and it is changing, but um, it's also just really scary. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of interesting things there. Uh, when you talk about like the history of how democratic it was in the pa past, even though it was voting Republican, whenever I was in college at UK, the president of the college Republicans was from Callaway County and he was a registered Democrat <laughs> because he was like, I have, I want to vote in, you know, the uh, judge executive and jailer and, uh, you know, yes. sheriff races and stuff like that, which are partisan races. And it was only Democrats that ran in those races, especially out in Western Kentucky. Um, and I really appreciate you talking about the rural urban, we talk about the rural urban divide so much. I mean, you're working for the rural urban exchange, but when we talk about like small cities versus the areas that surround them, that is probably the starkest rural urban divide, like in the state of Kentucky. I mean, it, I do a lot of maps. Uh, and if you look at like Paducah versus the rest of McCracken County or Murray versus the rest of Callaway County or Henderson versus the rest of Henderson County, that's actually a little bit less than the other ones. But um, it is it is very stark everywhere you look in the whole state, like you'll see the small precincts that make up just Paducah as like blue little blue dots and then right. dark dark red out once you get outside the city limits and and yeah um we don't talk about that nearly enough i think in in terms of like our smaller cities and how the rural urban divide is probably the starkest there yeah so definitely good insights there okay so um you know as a writer i definitely wanted to talk to you about that tell us a little bit about how you know moving to western kentucky has shaped your writing you came as you know, a, a younger poet, uh, somebody who's got educated, and, and then, of course, you became a professional uh, there in Western Kentucky. So how has the area kind of shaped what you've written about? And are there any particular, like, location spots uh, that, that inspire you the most? One thing that I've really enjoyed is that there are seasons, and some years we don't have all the seasons. Some years we have, like, two. Um, but some years we have four, or at least three and a half. And for me, the, the change in climate uh, really affected my writing. I didn't realize, you know, coming from Southern California where there's like fire season and earthquake season and you have fog in the summer. Like I didn't realize how much that affected memory and to have seasons, like I can think of a time and remember if I was very cold or, you know, I thought I was going to die of, of heat or the cicada were going like there's, there's so much more, the world seems so much more alive here because it changes and you can see the change. So that's had a, a pretty big impact on my writing. Uh, there's a lot of insects and there's a lot of, of like the green, when it turns green in the springtime, that's for real. Like I've never seen green like that. And then we get into like the deep summer and it's so lush that you're like, this could take over my house. Like these plants could just take over my house. You know, in a hundred years, if I did nothing, my house would probably disappear. And so I, I feel like the, the natural world here is so pronounced that that has definitely shown up in my writing. Um, I also know that water is really important to me. And 
living in Indiana, like there was no big body of water and I missed the ocean so much. And my, uh, my twin sister was in Chicago. So we used to drive up and like stand next to the lake and I would just pretend and it was great. But that was one of the things about Paducah. Like I can go down to the river and understand that like something vast and great is happening. And it has been here way before me. It will be here after me. It is doing things that I don't understand. Um, so if I ever feel lost, like I just go down and like look at the river and then something will come to me. So I've got a lot of, uh, a lot of poems that involve the river um, just because it's, it's so powerful um, and it's so calming. And I don't, I don't really understand how people don't live near water. Yeah, that that's really cool. I really appreciate that. Uh, I, I really love rivers too. And um, yeah, I mentioned I, a couple times that I have family in Ashland. I also have family in Paducah. Um, and it was always always kind of cool that I can like walk to downtown yeah. Louisville and look at the Ohio River and be like, well, that way I can see my yes. grandparents, and that way I can see my aunts and uncles. And, yeah, you know, it's like all connected. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, cool. So if people want to read more of your writings or learn more about you, where can they do that? Probably go to my website. I've got a lot of pieces linked. Um, for a while, I was also a snob about whether something was in print or it was online. And then I realized that like far more people will see it if it's online. So I've tried to link things as they've been published. Um, yeah, but probably that's that's the best place. You can also find like links to my book and the chat books. Um, somebody made a super cool little letterpress pamphlet for me too. So I got that. But um yeah, that's, that's where I try to put up new things. All right, cool. Well, Amelia Martins, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Robert. This was super fun. You can find out more about us by looking for us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, um, by searching My Old KY Pod. We have a newsletter that comes out occasionally that you can sign up for at my, uh, tinyletter.com slash newsletter. You can find our podcast at any podcasting app of your choice, and you can support us on Patreon by looking up My Old Kentucky Podcast. We're part of the Forward Kentucky Network, and last but not least, um, you can find us on the Dimcast Network. All right, thank you very much, everybody. We'll see you next week. 